You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Peter Eubel, who is a university professor at Duke University in business, public policy, and medicine, based primarily out of the... Speak of Unsiloed. Yes, I know, at the Fuqua School. But this is really unique. First of all, there's not a lot of MDs that teach in a business school, although we're starting to see increasing numbers of MDs come through our MBA programs. But also, as a doctor, someone who has a background in the behavioral sciences, in economics, and in behavioral economics in particular, this is a unique combination. It's kind of a nice stew, which is the metaphor you use in one of your books when it comes to the different recommendations that you have for the U.S. healthcare system. And so I think this combination is one that we need a lot more people like you because the healthcare system consumes about 20% of our GNP. And yet it seems to defy almost, I mean, while it adheres to the laws of economics, it seems to defy the kind of productivity increases that we see occurring in other parts of the economy. It doesn't seem to fall neatly into any bucket as either a market-based system or a state-based system, but it's kind of like, it sort of has some of the best and some of the worst features of both. And I think you've been outspoken in kind of highlighting some of these opportunities for improvement, shall we say, but also offering some specific recommendations. And so hopefully we'll, we'll be able to talk about those. But I wanted to start off with some of the stuff that you wrote about in, I should say, this book, which is called Free Market Madness, Why Human Nature is at Odds with Economics and Why It Matters. And then we'll get to the material in Sick to Debt, How Smarter Markets Lead to Better Care. I saw this latter book, Sick to Debt, as, you know, building on the work that you did in free market madness, but there seems to also have been a bit of an evolution in your approach to consumer-driven healthcare. So maybe we'll start off with the free market madness book. So, you know, what, first of all, as a doctor, doctors are primarily focused on, I like to think of doctors as mechanics, right? You know, someone comes in, they've Ooh. got a problem, you fix Ooh. the problem and you send them on out, right? And, and, well, and you seem to be someone- Terrible that is... metaphor, <laughs> hate it. Well, hey, you, said, you, said, you said somewhere in the book, like you didn't know which was a bigger insult to call someone a doctor or an economist. So I, I have to <laughs> say that's, that's sort of how sometimes well, I think off, of it. It's not an insult to call someone a mechanic. I wanna be very clear on that. Okay. <laughs> it's just super different, especially I'm an internist, right? So maybe I could call, like a, I might call an orthopedic surgeon a carpenter, you know, you might call a vascular surgeon a plumber. Us internists, we're not mechanics. I guess we have the diagnosis part of mechanics, but we rarely fix things as quickly as mechanics do. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but why, I mean, you know, most people go through medical school and they manage to avoid large parts of biology even, and yet you not only delve into the natural sciences, but you were deeply interested in the social sciences. So what drew you to the social sciences? What drew you to pursue your erudition in the field is evident from this book as you do kind of a, you go way back to the beginning and you review the history of economics all the way through to modern behavioral economics. Oh yeah. Well, first off, I love the word erudition. I've never had it applied to me before. So thank you for that. 
Yeah, I actually was a philosophy major as an undergrad, and the place I went to college, they emphasized history of philosophy. That was the that was what we got steeped in. It was which Carleton, is really right? You, go to, you went to Carleton, is that right? It was Carleton College in Minnesota, yeah. yeah. But we really, we you got into it was. I mean, intellectual philosophy history was intellectual history for a lot in a lot of ways. Maybe the arts would be the exception, but most science sprung out of of economics. Most social science. That Adam Smith was a moral philosopher right so yeah i think that was just i kind of geeked out on that stuff from a pretty early age and so any co topic i come across i kind of want to know how do we get here especially when the, the ideas don't jibe with what i'm seeing in the world and, and so i really feel like you know i came out of a philosophy major really interested in rationality and maybe a little bit overly obsessed with it myself a lot of ex-girlfriends would attest to that and then I went to medical school and residency and started taking care of a lot of people who really great people who were struggling to control their own behaviors and who knew that they were undermining their own health with the way they behaved. And they came to me like almost begging for help. And, and I could see that there's a lot more going on to how people think, decide, act and behave than rationality for sure. And so that just got me really interested in how people tick and that but it means you have to go to social sciences really to figure that out. Right. Well, when we think about health in general, the part of our health care or our sick care that, that touches the health care system, I mean, it's only a subset of the activities and the choices that we make that impact our health, our physical and our mental health. And, and yet, you know, it's not really within the domain of a typical clinician, right? So my choice to smoke or not smoke is going to have a much, much larger impact on my life expectancy than probably almost anything that I'm going to do that involves a doctor. But that's sort of outside of the realm of what we think of as healthcare. I heard the dean of Stanford Medical School say that we don't have a healthcare system, we have a sick care system. You know, healthcare kind of comes in after the damage has been done. And I, I mean, obviously, I don't think that's not a completely accurate description, but it does say something. Why do we have a system that's set up like that in the first place? Yeah, no, that's great. That's a great question. I, I trained in primary care. And so one of the reasons I was drawn to that field, besides the high uh, remuneration, was that we try to take care of the whole person and we try to do more prevention than cure if we can, because you don't have to cure something that you prevented. So that that was very much my orientation, but it's not where the money's made in medicine. It's not where the power is. It's not how the field has evolved to, you know, and when people get really sick, they do need that curative care, but that's so impossible to avoid that it's really easy to charge a lot of money for it. And then that's where you go into a specialty that pays really well because you take care of people after they're broken. And it's much harder to think of a system that would be incentivizing everyone to just keep people healthy in the first place. And so you talk about how the idea that if people are left to their own devices, they're going to wind up making choices which maximize, whether it be their utility or their well-being or their long-term best interests. You're skeptical of this idea. And it seems to be uh, I don't know, something that's ingrained in our national psyche, right? It's sort of a view of the world that is almost second nature to all of us, in at least in the U.S. Do you think that's true for people who haven't had a bunch of economics classes? <laughs> well, it's hard otherwise to explain why things like smoking are even legal, right? I mean, if if it's illegal to 
walk around without a mask right, during this pandemic, and yet it's illegal to smoke a cigarette. I mean, half a million people die of cigarette smoking every single year, which is more, you know, that we've spent $3 trillion to save a smaller number of people, you know, with COVID, but we don't make something like that illegal. It has to be because of our respect for human choice, right? Yeah, I don't think that's it. I mean, that's maybe history comes back again. I mean, I think the reason a lot of things happen is because we got into trouble before we knew that we were getting into trouble and then it's hard to undo. So tobacco just seemed like this great thing to socially bond over and maybe it was relaxing to people. And then we started finding out it caused cancer, but that wasn't really until the 60s, 70s. And then there's a huge industry. There's a lot of mortgages that depend on the industry. Hard to undo it. I think the same goes. I had a grandfather who made his living with carbonated beverages and he did the carbonation part of that and he was a chemical engineer and we didn't know that soda that's what we meant pop is what we call it in minnesota yeah it was bad for people and in which we did there's a huge industry so I, climate change is another example of something where we had all this exciting ways to draw energy from the planet that allowed us to go travel far distances in short amounts of time to do i mean etc you know this better than i do and now it's hard to undo. So I do think that plays a huge role. Now, there's a lot of irrationality that happens once we find out something's bad. Like we find ways to reject that information, especially if it would be hurt my own self-image. We hold on to the beliefs we've had longer than we should. We scour for asymmetric information that just supports what we already believe. So there's lots of other great, you know, bad psychology that supports it later too. Okay, so then your argument is that the economists are the ones that are the only people who have these misguided beliefs and that kind of ordinary common sense tells you that we all understand that we make bad choices. It's just the economists who are trying to say, oh, no, 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 those bad choices are not bad choices after all. I bet you know, there's a lot of behavioral psychologists, you know, B.F. Skinner types that would have held those beliefs. I actually think a lot of medical training, we, we tended to think of patients as being more rational than they were. So yeah, there's, it's not just a economist, but I don't, I think most lay people looking around who haven't had a bunch of ideas from the academy crammed into their heads, theories, would never look around and say, most people do everything, you know, do what's best for themselves. Anybody who's raised kids and tried to convince them, you know, I just, it's hard to believe that you'd think of humans as these highly rational creatures. Right. Medicine has always had somewhat of a paternalistic view of the world. I think that's probably changed in the last century, right? So if you went back 100 years ago, a doctor would, you know, might even feel comfortable deceiving a patient if they thought that was in the best interest. And now customer primacy or patient primacy, right? And so the doctor is supposed to just sort of serve up some options and let the patient decide. And I think your argument, at least in this book, is that you know, maybe we should be a little worried about having kind of unfettered consumer choice, the realm of healthcare. Why is that? I mean, there are certainly people that are advocating that we treat healthcare kind of like we treat almost anything else, right? Whether we think of housing or consumer goods or, or cars, you know, why don't we just have a free market for healthcare? You refer to Singapore and Singapore has something that is kind of closer to that. And they wind up spending 4% of GNP instead of 20%. And it seems like their healthcare outcomes are pretty good. So why wouldn't we want to have a system like that in place where unfettered consumer choice, perhaps some 
policies that would mandate high quality disclosure around uh, efficacy and maybe high quality disclosure around pricing, that sort of thing, kind of FTC-like protections uh, around healthcare provision. What, what would be the problem with uh, a system like that? Yeah, so I, I would distinguish a little bit between an unfettered free market and what happens in Singapore. Um, in an unfettered free market, I would imagine that people, they can decide whether to buy health insurance or not, no mandate, anything. That insurance is likely to not regulate it. And then when they get to receive care, they decide, they find out the price and figure out what care they want, best to get the quality, et cetera. In Singapore, they have an interesting system. The prices aren't set by some kind of competitive market. The, the government sets the price. So one of the reasons they spent 4% is the prices are much lower. And I'm, I'm not talking about prices for drugs. That's, I don't know particularly, although I'm guessing they, almost everyone in the country has lower drug prices than we have in the United States because the governments, you know, they negotiate that. But even for hospital care, for physician fees, things like that, much lower prices because of government regulation. Now, in addition to that, and what's really interesting about their model is they have everybody mandated, and this is, again, not quite a free market, right? They mandate that they have some of their pay go into a health savings account. They call it MediSave. And now that's there to use on medical care because they know anytime you get medical care, there's going to be some substantial out-of-pocket cost, not 90% of the cost, but it might be 30% of the cost, whatever. And because everything's going to cost something, people start figuring out the price and decide, do I really want this or not? And why do they care? Because that pot of money is theirs. It rolls over year to year. And it can even roll over to their family after they die to give them a little bit of a nest egg for their healthcare expenses. So they really try to be more frugal. That is something that's certainly worth thinking about. I think to have that work, Everybody needs to be in that system. Prices need to be out there in the open where people can see them. And people who don't have many financial means, we need to give them that healthcare nest egg that they can carry with them and hand off to their kids. Because otherwise, if it, it's just a chance for rich people to avoid taxes, that wouldn't be as good of a deal. Right. So you're saying that we, if we separate out kind of the healthcare cost part of the system, and then there's the kind of cost spreading aspect of the system. I think a lot of people tend to conflate them, right? And and they say, well, you know, healthcare insurance is really expensive. And that, that's sort of two things. There's the cost of the care. And then there's, you know, whether you are someone who's bearing the risk or, you know, whether that risk is mitigated. And so a lot of people say that the biggest problem in the U.S. is lack of comprehensive health insurance when maybe the bigger problem is the sheer cost of healthcare in the U.S., so why is it? I mean, if you look at elective surgeries, for instance, so this is what advocates of a more market-like system would say. If you look at Lasix, if you look at orthodontics, or if you look at anything that is not covered by insurance, you just see this dramatic decline in costs, right? Which is matching everything else we're seeing in the world, you know, with the decline of computing costs and so forth. And it's only in those areas that are non-elective that we see this, you know, constant increase in, in, in prices. So, I make so, a distinction between yeah. cosmetic and elective. So, if I need a hip replacement, that's elective because it's not emergent. So, that's what we mean. When, that's just jargon. That's what we mean when we talk about elective. But that's been a big deal in the COVID era because a lot of elective procedures have been delayed from the big waves we had earlier. Probably we're starting to see more delaying of elective procedures with COVID right, uh, rearing its ugly head again. Cosmetic is different, right? So if I, a, a LASIK surgery for my eyes, it does cure an eye problem, but it's an eye problem that could be cured with glasses. All it really does is mean you don't have to wear glasses and it 
In my case, glasses hide circles under my eyes. I think it's cosmetically better. But for many people to hear, that's not preferred. And so, yes, when it's a cosmetic, so it's completely optional and there's no real medical necessity for it, we don't ask insurance to pay for that. Insurance doesn't want to pay for that. And I think that's a super justifiable thing. And now people look around like, whoa, was it worth paying that amount of money? And if it's not, I won't get it. And then the people offering the procedure say, hmm, I wonder if I lower the price, whether I'll get more business. And now we have a market. So you're right. That really, if everything in healthcare was like that, prices would go lower for sure. Now the question is, when I need a liver transplant, do you want me to look at the price and say, nope, I think that's too expensive and then die of liver failure for not being able to pay for it? And so once we have this idea that, no, as a society, we want people to be able to get life-saving care regardless of their ability to pay, it, cha- it just changes the equation. Yeah. I mean, there's something about healthcare. We tend to think of it as different from other types of goods, right? We don't think of it as a consumption good, right? We don't say everyone is entitled to live in a million dollar house, right? We we talk about low income housing. And then even if we think that everyone is entitled to housing, we don't think that they're entitled to an eight bedroom house with a swimming pool, right? We we say, okay, you know, you're entitled to a, you know, a little room with, with with a kitchenette, right? But we think like, okay, if it's FDA approved, then, you know, you're entitled to it more or less. Uh, or we, no, we, we think there's no. a moral, we think yeah, there's a moral uh, entitlement, do we, as, as a society? Uh, so no, because there are things that are FDA approved that we might not think of as being essential benefit. And so that's another distinction I'd make. Remember, I had that philosophy degree, kind of get into this. But the FDA is where their job is to say, is something safe or effective? Not, is it essential? Is it something that everyone should get for free at a lower price? That's not what the FDA decides. And so there are lots of things that the FDA approved and does approve where, yeah, we might decide as a society, people, if they want it, they should pay for it. Especially if there's an alternative that's almost as good and a lot less expensive, we might say you should pay the difference in price if you, if you can. Well, so you, you talk a bit about the British system and how they use this, what is it, the NICE, right? NICE. Um, I was intrigued by it because it sort of applies. It's kind of like a cost benefit test. You know, it's like an FDA approval sort of thing, but you have to go through this cost benefit threshold, right? And in other aspects of governmental expenditure, we we have cost benefit analysis that that has to be done. It's not strictly binding, but, you know, I think it's OERA says anytime you're going to pass some regulation, you have to do some kind of cost benefit analysis. And there's a cost of human life that is distributed to all the different regulatory agencies. But when it comes to, to healthcare, at least in the US, we, we don't have something like this. Could you talk about how that system works in the UK and what might be good about it? What might be problematic about it? Sure. So the, the, United, the UK has a socialized system, fully socialized system. So it's a, it's a government payer and the hospitals and the clinicians, they all are government employees, things like that. And the government then for, therefore decides what it's going to pay for. So suppose a new drug comes to market. The FDA in the United States would decide, is that drug safe? Is it effective against cancer X? And if it is, they approve it. In the United Kingdom, they'd look at, is it safe? Is it effective? Yes, yes, okay. Is it cost effective? And what that means is how much money do you spend for a good year of life? That's a, the technical term is a quality, a quality just life or good, whatever. It just, and so now we want to know, and I think in their it's around 30,000 pounds for a good year of life is the threshold. And if it costs 40,000 pounds to bring a good year of life with that drug, it won't get, it won't get paid. They won't pay for it. Um, now, the result is that there are some drugs that we have available here in the United States that aren't available there. 
maybe just as often or more often, they have the same drug on their market at a third of our price, 40% of our price, something like that. Because the drug companies bring down the price to reach that threshold. But that also means that there might be some drugs that are not available, right? Or perhaps they're available, but you would have to pay out of pocket for them because it's it's deemed insufficiently valuable. But there's it's a one-size-fits-all plan, right? They don't have like a gold, silver, platinum sort of tiering. Why don't we seem to have that? That would seem to be one way to address this because there are obviously some people who maybe have a willingness to pay for a quality which is higher than 30,000 pounds, right? And so right now they would just simply have to pay out of pocket or why couldn't we have a sort of a tiered insurance scheme where you say, okay. Um, why, as we, as in the UK, is that what you mean? No, we in the US, we don't seem to have something like that where it's, you have a, a basic plan and sort of a higher tiered plan, a higher tiered plan, which essentially reflects the fact that maybe different people have different levels of risk aversion, or maybe people have different, attach a different value to their lives, or perhaps have a higher willingness to pay because they're wealthier. It seems like the tiering and in insurance is very, very different. You know, we, it's all about like, okay, co-pays and deductibles and stuff like that. Yeah. So if I'm understanding your question, well, we don't have any use of cost effectiveness in the United States. It is, it's not factored into certainly into any of the government payers that would be Medicare and Medicaid and the VA and military. And as for private insurers, I, I don't know of any that makes a significant use of it, probably because it'd be hard for them to look stingier than Medicare. And so cost effectiveness, we don't, so you can't say, I want $30,000 for quality and it's, I want 50, I want 70, I'll pick a plan that maps my values. That's just not even, it's not used. It would make some sense if we could get people to understand the concepts and let them vote with their dollars for sure. And I think wealthier people, if, as long as the floor of what people got was really good, uh, if people wanted to pay more, I, I think that's exactly a, a great thing to do. And, and we, we don't have that. Now, we have it a little bit to the extent that there are people who get these really generous insurance plans. And that was some of the, the Cadillac coverage you might have heard about in the news. And that, that even the Obamacare tried to to limit that and ban it out of concern that it just allowed really rich people to get whatever they wanted, and then they wouldn't even care what anyone else got. But for the most part, yeah, we kind of all stick with fairly similar kind of plans. You either get it through your job or you get it through the government, and they mainly cover the same things. And so when we think about why the healthcare is so expensive in the U.S., you, you point to a number of things. Number one is price transparency. Advocates of market-like solutions would require, at the very least, that People know what they're paying or what they're going to pay. And it turns out that not only do patients not know what things cost, they also don't even know oftentimes what they're going to pay. And the doctors who are also deeply involved in the decision making, and we'll have to get to that as well, because anything you say about patients in terms of their decision making problems will also apply to doctors. Doctors don't seem to have a whole lot of awareness of the, the cost, not just to the system, but to their patients. So is it this opacity presumably serves a purpose? And not only is it that people don't know, but a lot of the insurance providers contractually obligate hospitals to more or less conceal what's being paid. I mean, is this any different from when I go on the plane and I paid a thousand dollars to get on the seat? There might be some other people that paid 50 and some other people paid 600 and some other people have the frequent flyer miles. And I don't really have any visibility into that. Is it just hey, these guys are doing some price discrimination. They don't want anybody to kind of know. Or is it something more systematic and more profound? 
Yeah, I love that analogy. I, I, I think it's a different kind of price opacity. So when you get an airline ticket, at least you know what your price is. Mm-hmm, and you can decide right. whether you're willing to pay it. And maybe you start searching around for other days to travel or other airlines to go on, or you'll take an extra stop or whatever. And now the search engine you use probably knows enough about you that you might get a different price than someone else. You didn't know that. That's kind of sneaky, but at least you knew your price in healthcare. Well, well, occasionally, had- occasionally they'll sneak up on you with some you know, baggage fees and some you know, boarding pass fees. There's a little bit of that. There's definitely some opacity in there. Yeah. And quality is really opaque because you don't know how much leg room you'll have half the time, things like that. But in healthcare in the United States, you don't even know what your cost is half the, most of the time. And if you ask your physician, they can't figure out. And partly that's because the system is so ridiculously complicated that there's no single price for anything because it all depends on what insurance someone has. Now, if everybody had the same insurance, the price might still depend on whether you've finish paying off your deductible this year, because if you haven't, it's all on you. Or maybe you're at the point where you've reached your out-of-pocket maximum where insurance pays the rest of the way for the year. It's zero to you. And so it, it can that can make it even more complicated. But really to get to the main crux of what I think you are getting at, in many prices in the United States, especially for private insurance, are negotiated by the insurance company and the providers. So you go get a heart bypass surgery at Duke, the insurance company might pay a lot more at Duke than it does at UNC, not just because Duke is better than UNC in everything. I love UNC, but maybe Duke was a better negotiator. Maybe they they had a service that the insurance company really needed and so they couldn't walk away from the negotiation as effectively. I'll tell you, Duke doesn't want UNC to know what we charge for things. Blue Cross doesn't want UNC to know because that'll be harder to negotiate with them next year. And so the opacity is partly because the prices are these secret negotiations. Last summer, I got a concussion and I went into the, the hospital. You know, I was in there for, I don't know, two, three hours getting x-ray or whatever. And then I got the bill. It was $88,000. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I wound up paying like $400 or something. And that didn't include the ambulance, which was another like $20,000 or something. And so first of all, these invoices are, you know, they don't reflect anything. It's It's all fake, fake pricing and so forth. But, and so I have absolutely no idea what my provider paid, but yes, I have no idea. I'm with Kaiser. And so it's kind of a integrated system. Oh, it is which, totally fake then. <laughs> which, right. Yeah. So I didn't go to Kaiser. I went to a different one and then Kaiser had to pay because it was an emergency and so forth. When we look at these numbers, I don't know what they paid, but I'm sure they paid a lot. This is a world where the payers are the customers, right? So I did a project for a pharma company and that we were talking about pricing and they didn't really have a pricing group. They were creating a pricing group because their pricing was sort of, let's see what people will pay and whatever. I was surprised at how unsophisticated it was. But there's a situation where economic theory would predict the more sophisticated the buyers, the lower the prices would be. And yet here's a world where when you have these super sophisticated buyers, these insurance companies, we see the prices kind of continue to escalate. Whereas in the cosmetic world where, you know, it's just these ordinary individuals, we see the prices declining. I mean, I'll give you another example. I had a dental procedure and I had to go to like six different dentists to get a diagnosis and each six did the exact same x-ray. Like even, even two people in the same building. And, and I was wondering, well, why doesn't the Delta Dental Insurance Company sort of say, hey, look guys, you guys, if you want money from us, you've got to put this x-ray in the cloud and you got to make it available to everybody. And they're not doing it. 
I mean, that would save them an enormous amount of money. Why aren't the insurance companies more aggressive when it comes to negotiating lower prices? Why aren't they acting kind of like the British government and pushing prices down? Yeah, I think there's the, you have to think of the insurance in the short and the long run. In the short run, any given year, I'm an insurance company. I take in premiums and I want to spend as little as I can out of that and keep the rest for myself. Now I'm regulated and I have to spend a certain amount or I'll get in trouble. And also my, I'll get bad PR if I'm denying really necessary care. But that would be the short run, what I'd like to do. But also, but in the long run, every year that I am in business, I'm really good at math. No, my employees are really good at math. They know how to build a 4% margin into the premiums that we charge. I would like that to be 4% of a larger healthcare spend. And so I think insurance companies love that healthcare spending keeps rising and rising and rising. It's just a bigger business and they get 4% of it. Right. So they're, they're basically able to pass on their costs to the customer without a whole lot of Pushback. resistance. Yeah, I think and, that's right. Okay. But then that would then push the problem to say the HR group at a company, right? And so why aren't those people? That is group don't understand. And I would love your, you figure this out for me because why aren't employers doing a better job of pressuring the system to lower spending? There's a little bit of stuff they have to recognize that if they want to retain really good employees. They can't be offering skimpy insurance plans, things like that. But you'd think the big employers would have enough power to, to bring, to push harder, to bring down the prices where they turn from one insurance company to another, if the premiums are going up too high, I honestly don't know why they haven't been more successful. Yeah. Well, we saw Amazon and JP Morgan try to, you know, tackle this and they gave up, right? <laughs> so they... Complicated. It's more complicated <laughs> than I thought. That's right. Right. If Amazon can't figure it out, then you know that there's it's it's complicated, right? Because they're pretty good at figuring things out. But, you know, let's turn to the doctors because you describe a bunch of wonderful sort of clinical conversations in the book, some anecdotes where you have patients and doctors sitting down and trying to work out treatment plans. And, and you talk about some good conversations and some not so good conversations. And the good conversations involve not just a description of the different kind of procedures, but also kind of some costs, not only financial costs, but also costs in terms of inconvenience and, and, and so forth. But I think a lot of people would argue that doctors tend to make choices that are often completely agnostic with respect to cost. Is this part of the inherent ethical disposition of the medical profession, or is it just a lack of knowledge, or is it lack of consumer pressure? And because they don't take a great interest in this, it means that they are vulnerable to all sorts of influence, subconscious influence. And you describe some examples of, you know, pharmaceutical representatives and so forth who are providing, you know, information to doctors, presumably influencing them. Why is that? Why are, why are doctors not? I think of, for instance, if, if I had a financial manager, a good quality financial manager who had a fiduciary duty to me, that financial manager would not only factor in the expected returns of a different investment, but also the liquidity characteristics and the volatility characteristics and the fee structure and like, you know, everything to fulfill their fiduciary duty. Why do doctors define their fiduciary duty so narrowly with respect to maximizing the probability that you'll live the next 18 months, right? I mean, even quality of life, oftentimes for a lot of doctors, they don't factor in quality of life, right? Even 
I no, I agree. In fact, I in the book between the two words we've been talking about, a book I wrote called Critical Decisions. I'm hoping this podcast will push all books into double digit sales. But um, <laughs> well, I'm certainly, hey, I'm, cer I'm certainly, I'm certainly going to go and buy all the other books now. <laughs> but I, I, I made that analogy with financial planners, where I think they actually are do they do a better job on average than physicians at understanding like you, their clients goals and preferences before making recommendations, whereas physicians often assume you just want to live at all costs and ignore quality of life. And I'm, that's just like one potential assumption, but some doctors make different assumptions. Now, so that's even just when you're talking about quantity versus quality of life. I don't think we as physicians do as well as we ought to. Throw money in the mix, it gets even more difficult. And it's partly because when the physicians have earnestly tried to figure out costs, they can't. And so you know, you're already 30 minutes, 45 minutes behind in clinic. You, this person has th two complaints you didn't expect them to have today while you were there to address their Parkinson's disease. And you're trying to really do a great job caring for them. How can you spend any amount of time digging up price information that's unavailable to inform your care? I think you end up hoping that they'll check at the pharmacy or that, the, that they'll let, call you if there's trouble or that, frankly, you think, Everything, all these drugs are expensive. So whichever one you prescribe is okay, even though it might depend on your insurance plan. So, you know, I teach courses on decision theory and data science. And so when I see the systems in place in, in healthcare, I'm a little bit befuddled, right? So on the one hand, if I want to go and buy a dishwasher, I mean, I have, like, I could find all the information related to all the brands of dishwashers in tabular form, right? It, highlighting all of the pros and the cons of the different models and makes, you know, have the different prices and have the different features. And this one has, you know, this much water consumption and this one has, and that information is provided by third parties, maybe consumer reports, sometimes by the vendor, maybe like the Home Depot will give me this information. And this is a relatively insignificant item when it comes to my life and my quality of life, right? I mean, actually, that sh I take that back. The dishwasher was probably the best purchase I made during COVID. But, you know, that's a sort of a simple decision. But if I'm deciding on healthcare, I mean, even at University of California, every year we have our elect, you know, we get to choose our healthcare. And it's just like, you just get bombarded with all of this documentation and all this stuff. And, and I, I consider myself a pretty educated person and I just can't make heads or tails of any of this stuff. And, and they're just like, throw it at you and say, you go figure it out. And you can't tell which one has, you know, fertility benefits and which one has, you know, this or that. And you have no idea what the consequences would be of even like a fractured tooth, which I had last year. I had no idea what that was going to impact that was going to have on my expenditure. So you can't run simulations or anything like that. And, and certainly doctors. And then once you do get diagnosed, say with, with cancer, the doctor's like, well, you know, you got this and you got that. I mean, why don't they hand you an information sheet in tabular form describing all the different trade-offs and then you can make an informed choice? Yeah, you pack a lot into that at the minute, so I'll forget half of what you said at least. Yeah, when you're buying a one-time thing like a dishwasher, that's a discrete decision, limited amount of information, you can figure it out, go for it. If you're thinking of insurance, and if you buy life insurance, you're really just thinking about the risk of death that you'll face in a given year. It's worth spending for what kind of a premium and, and a whatever the payment's called, <laughs> I forgot the name. If you're buying health insurance, yeah, for health insurance, you're thinking about there's a million possible services that you might need in a given year. Some are predictable and those you should totally factor the choice. If you know that you have multiple sclerosis and are gonna be on expensive medicines, you better figure out how well the plans cover those kind of medicines. 
then you're probably going to want to have a higher premium, low out-of-pocket cost. So that should inform your choice. But for many people, that's it's there's it's not one uncertain thing you're trying to factor in. It's a hordes of them. Now let's go to a specific moment of care. We often will do a test to check you for something. And I can tell you what that test costs, but if that test is positive and it starts a trajectory of care, or we have to have a follow-up test, the blood test is abnormal, now we did an x-ray, now we need to biopsy, and the biopsy drops your lung. And I can't tell you what it's going to cost because everything is so uncertain. Well, you described even in your own treatment how you were kind of ambushed by kind of unexpected costs. And I mean, can you think of a more informed consumer than you? I mean, you're the most sophisticated consumer I could imagine out there, and you were still a bit confused by the choices you had. Yeah, I had a, a small tumor on my kidney and was and it was fairly simple choice, two main treatments, one that would freeze it and one that would remove it. And they, they also meant that there'd be different amount of follow-up scans needed. And I went with the one that had fewer scans because that, that had a time cost that was important to me. And when I got that procedure, the doctor started recommending more frequent scans anyway, because he was nervous about me. And he just, I was younger than the typical patient who had that cancer and I was healthier and he'd had a patient with a bad outcome the previous week. And all of a sudden there's a bias, you know, that, that's, we call that in behavioral economics, right? We call it an availability heuristic. What you remember, it looms large in your decisions. All these things, he was switching the course of care, not in a nefarious way, like trying to make more money out of me. That wasn't at all at play and really trying to provide good care. But I was like, that wasn't the decision I made. It was very weird. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to um, Sue Armstrong, who wrote a book about birth uh, recently. And, and she said, you know, frequently, no matter how well thought out your birth plan is, right, once the labor starts, then, you know, doctors will say, okay, hey, you know, you need to do this. But those kind of scenarios were usually not kind of played out prior to the it's the Mike Tyson kind of, thing, right? What's the quote? Uh, you know, plans are everyone, all great until you a, get hit in the face or something. Yeah, everyone has a strategy until you get hit in the face. But, but you know, when yeah. you step into the boxing ring, there's a pretty high probability you're going to get hit in the face, right? And so, you know, that should be part of your stress testing of your, of your decision making. But I think, you know, economists seem to think that we can fine tune the incentives. We have all sorts of complex models, which I think work when you're dealing, if, if I have an options trader, in my office and I design a very complex incentive scheme to get them to do certain things. I'm sure it'll work, but how effective are all these efforts to kind of change the, the co-pays and change the deductibles to try to, you know, get consumers or patients to kind of make choices that are sensible and cost-effective. Yeah. You brought me to the recipe. There's lots of things we can do to make it better, but doing one of them doesn't necessarily even interest in the direction. So if I make if I make uh, prices transparent, that doesn't do a whole lot of good if the if the prices don't match up to the the quality or the value of the good. If I help people make better insurance choices, but prices are opaque once they get their insurance plan, that doesn't do much good. So I, I think we need to help make it easier for people to make to start with like what insurance plan they purchase if they have a choice. By the way, we should also give people choice if we can, but that's hard. But when they have choice, Give them the tools. And those, I think you could, I think an economist could do a great job of building in some kind of a system where it asks enough questions of me before I buy an insurance plan that it says, well, here's your expected annual cost for these plans. Here's the up higher and lower risk. This is a riskier plan, but probably on average will cost you less. 
and then I can decide whether I want to take that risk. So like a, like a flow chart, something that says, okay, hey, you know, like if the dishwasher, it's like, hey, how many dishes do you plan on, you know, using every yeah. night? And like, yeah. you know, do you have gas or electric? You know, do you have like, and then by the end, it's like, oh, well, and we recommend the Bosch yeah. based on and your, with your insurance, price point. What you're going to do is you're going to say, oh, so you ha you already take three medicines. You went to the doctor five times last year. This plan looks like it'll cost you less this year. But if, the, if you end up getting really sick, it could cost as much as this. Now, if you... If you've chosen this other plan instead, it's likely to cost you more unless you get really sick and then it's so generous it'll cost you less, which already when I said that, I realized how confusing that can be. But I think with the right graphics, you could help people. So that step, let's, let's make it easier to understand your insurance choice. I think another ingredient then here, I just went from steps to ingredients, sorry, is um, let's get the prices out there. And there's been legislation to make that happen. It's nascent and the industry is dragging its feet, partly because it's hard to, it just costs money to put this, all this information out there, but hospitals are required to list prices now and not just the Medicare prices, but the prices they charge to insurers for common things. And so I think we're getting, that's more of that starting to happen. And that's a great move. But wait, but helping, I mean, that's a step that would help consumers to minimize their out-of-pocket expenditures. But from a societal perspective, right, that's not our main concern, right? Our main concern is to get the biggest benefit for the smallest overall cost to the system. And so, you know, that may sometimes require charging patients more, right, rather than less, right? If we're trying to discourage unnecessary procedures, if we're trying to, that would require a, a different kind of design, set of design tools, because we're not just interested in doing what's best for, for the patient financially or even in terms of their overall health. We, we were trying to get the biggest benefit per dollar spent, right? So how do we, how do we design and can we design incentives for that? Or is everything you said about human behavior suggest that those incentives don't, you know, don't really work? No, we can, but yeah, you make better choices, better insurance choice. Now you know what something will cost you out of pocket. Those are two ingredients, but they might fail if the price that I pay doesn't really reflect the value of the good I get. And so that's a third ingredient is to say, let's have out-of-pocket costs. What what a person who's got insurance has to pay to get that next, that other medicine or to get that procedure. Let's have that out-of-pocket cost go up or down depending on the value. If this is a dr uh, intervention that for a relatively low cost to society at large, brings a lot of benefit to a patient, well, let's encourage them to get it with a low out-of-pocket cost. On the other hand, it's a chemotherapy, say, a really expensive chemotherapy that brings very modest benefits. Let's have more of that cost be borne by the patient. So that the out-of-pocket cost now is a signal of how much we want you to get it. If we make it hard for you to get it, it might be because it's not that high in value. So remember that pricing things that way, changing the out-of-pocket costs, wouldn't work very well if people couldn't figure out what something would cost them. So you kind of need both of those ingredients, right? But that would also require some kind of cost-benefit analysis, right? Which you said that in Medicare, that's actually prohibited. Is it only prohibited in terms of whether they offer or don't offer the procedure? Or could they, without violating that, that law, charge differentially for, you know, co-pays? Uh, yeah, great question. They cannot base reimbursement on cost. Whether they cover, they can't base coverage, whether it's covered, based on cost-effectiveness. But already Medicare is a pretty high out-of-pocket program. And so it, 
it's certainly possible. I think Congress, Congress would have to act to say that we're willing to have out-of-pocket costs go up or down depending on value. Now, the problem is the date, all they've done is reduce out-of-pocket costs for things they think are really valuable. And I think that's a great thing to do. But so like, for instance, the uh, colo colorectal cancer screening or, you know, certain mammograms, yep. those things are, are basically, Free. there's no copay, right? Yep. And that's great. Although for low-risk people, it's not, it, they, we shouldn't do that. But yeah, it, it absolutely, we need to do the flip side of that, which is to say that that chemotherapy, um, you're going to bear more of the cost if it's not cost-effective. Hard to say, hard to do. Yeah, but that's another interesting thing that you mentioned, which is perhaps this, you know, a mammogram for one person would be cost effective and for another it wouldn't. And then we would need to have some kind of risk metric. And it seems like we're institutionally very resistant to the idea of risk metrics. I remember, you know, when back in March of 2020, one of the things that I was advocating was that we use the data we have on coronavirus disease trajectory to come up with some kind of risk metric because there are people whose risk of death is, you know, 10,000 to 100,000 times greater than, than other people's. But we seem to somehow be very, I don't know, resistant to that. And what were you, you know, hoping to use that metric for? Because then you could do cost-benefit analysis on the different types of, of interventions, basically figure out differential degrees of protection, right? So if, if you have to spend a dollar on a non-pharmaceutical intervention, you, you might get a much bigger bang for your buck if it's spent, you know, essentially building out an entire new ventilation system in a nursing home might cost you millions of dollars and keeping kindergartners at home might cost you, you know, the same amount of money, but it would have a, you know, much lesser impact, right? So you figuring out like if you had a, what, there's no way you can do cost benefit analysis if you don't have a metric for what the consequences will be, which is clearly a function of the vulnerability that people have to the harm, to the threat. I absolutely completely agree with you on that. And I'm, I'm sorry that more people didn't come to think that way, but you know, as individuals, we're not great at thinking about risk. It's still probably something you know better than me. I remember seeing somebody biking down the street with a mask on and at first it struck me, that's kind of weird because you're not going to catch COVID biking outdoors, right? Also, the person was not wearing a helmet and was looking <laughs> at their phone while biking. Right. <laughs> well, I think we as individuals are pretty crazy about risk yeah. understanding, yeah. right? But I think the government, the society at large is a reflection of our individual risk attitude too. And so we end up with kind of some crazy policies as a result. Right. But that also suggests that these kind of micro changes in things like co-pays are not necessarily going to have the desired effect. You mentioned in the book that making uh, colorectal cancer screening free doesn't seem to have moved the needle all that much in terms of, you know, number of people uptake on the exams and that. Well, uh, there's, a lot of, there's to, other reasons besides yeah. the 25, the co-pay to not want a colonoscopy. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I had a good experience with mine, but I've talked to plenty of people who did who dreaded it and didn't like it. So yeah, I do think that all these things are just kind of trying to move move us in the right direction. But because we as a society spend so much money on healthcare, because it it affects our government budgets, because half of healthcare dollars spent in the United States are through government programs, because it affects our ability to function as a society to have a healthy workforce because it affects our ability for our employers to compete with companies in other countries that have lower healthcare expenses. We can't just 
push this all to consumers, fix a few things, tweak a few things about price transparency and out-of-pocket costs and whatever, and expect to to solve these problems. We actually, I think we need to do a lot more to just constrain how much we spend. And it means fighting very powerful lobbies, hospitals, physicians, pharma, device, payers. And those are really going to be hard. And that's why I think employers probably do have to play a big role in those efforts. Right. And so, you know, you talk about the managerial pursuit of value and a lot of doctors seem to be frustrated by the managerial approach to healthcare, and they seem to think that it impairs their autonomy or it interferes with their kind of medical judgment. I actually think maybe we don't have enough. When I look at hospitals and I see there are a lot of doctors oftentimes in executive positions, but they don't have any kind of managerial training or financial training and so forth. Should we think about making hospitals more like businesses or would that exacerbate the problem, you know, because it would lead to more profit seeking and more kind of exploitation of the compensation reimbursement anomalies and and so forth. Should we think about designing more standardized procedures and kind of constraining the discretion of doctors and getting them to follow guidelines that are more scientifically based, not just in terms of efficacy, but in terms of cost effectiveness? Yeah, you do pack a lot into question. I should be taking notes while you do that. Um, I think that hospitals are businesses. How clinics, outpatient clinics are businesses. They have been for a very long time, but they've been pretty easy businesses to run for much of American history because they just sent the bill to somebody and they got paid with no questions asked. When when insurance companies started trying to push back, not just on the price, but on whether something was indicated quote, indicated whether someone really needed to be in a hospital for those last three days, you started to see people, how can you question my medical judgment? And they're saying, how can you keep just charging me for all these unnecessary days in the hospital? So it, it became combative and it is combative and that's that's tricky. But I think, so it's really become something about how we line up incentives because yeah, as individual consumers, maybe we're all a little bit irrational, but man, your local cardiologist, rheumatologist, orthopedic surgeon, they know how they're being paid. And they know when there's a change in reimbursement, they know what that'll mean for their bottom line and they change accordingly. I mean, with limited constraint by their duty to their patients and how, you know, the ethical nature that they have as human beings, but you still see things are always shifting based on reimbursement. So they're very, very savvy from that side. And the more that it gets complex about how reimbursement's happening and stuff, the more they're starting to bring in people with business experience to help them do it better. So I, I'm really lucky now that I'm, I, I teach at Fuqua uh, Business School at Duke, and we have a big healthcare program here. A lot of people aren't physicians who are in that program, and they're working in different parts of healthcare. It's super fun to, to talk to them about these issues. But in my executive MBA course that I'm teaching right now, I have about, I think I have 20, maybe 15, 20 physicians taking it. And it's really interesting to see how they're trying to then bring what they learn in, in accounting and finance and things back to what they're doing and running a clinic or maybe moving up into hospital leadership, things like that. And so do you think these integrated providers, kind of like Kaiser I mentioned, where it's sort of the, the insurance function and the healthcare function are sort of, they're linked or they're vertically integrated, then they, they sort of get rewarded for kind of keeping you healthy. They think about the downstream consequences of 
what they're doing. Does that align the incentives better? Should we be moving more in that direction across the board? What I know about the Kaiser system is it's been providing high quality of care for a long time at maybe a little bit lower overall price, other similar kind of organizations. And partly it's because you don't have an insurance company fighting with a clinician or with a hospital. They're all part of the same organization and they have aligned, they have aligned goals. Like we want to provide high quality care within this budget. Now it hasn't transformed the system in part because it hasn't spread all over the country and Kaiser, I think, tried to be in North Carolina a couple of decades ago and failed miserably. So it's, a, it's tough to break in. It's a tough business to be in, even when you're a big company like that. Richard Nixon wanted to have more Kaisers in the world when he was president. That was how he thought we would, we would reform our healthcare system. That didn't get anywhere. Bill Clinton tried to do the same thing. So government hasn't been able to push us more in that direction. Well, last question it ties these two books together. In this book, Free Market Madness, you, you talk about obesity. You talk about smoking. You talk about how... You know, we make all sorts of decisions which have negative consequences for our health. And these happen outside of the medical domain. Then we wind up going to the hospital to try and deal with the resulting diabetes or, or cancer and so forth. How can we, as a society, integrate these two domains, right? I mean, doctors, how can doctors and healthcare providers and professionals help people to live healthier lives? Is it up to the medical system or should we be? thinking, as you suggest in the book, about using, say, tax policy uh, to encourage healthy behaviors, right? So, for instance, in New York City, they taxed carbonated sugary beverages, and that may have had a bigger impact. I don't sure. I'm not sure if there's been any good studies on this, but that may have had a bigger impact than investing millions and millions of dollars in the development of some new pharmaceutical. So if we can get really high quality health outcomes at lower cost through non-medical interventions, and, and maybe the, the whole, I mean, with coronavirus, most of the, we've, we've invested way, way, way more in non-pharmaceutical interventions than we did. I mean, we spent, I don't know, $10 billion developing the vaccine, but we spent, you know, trillions of dollars do, doing other things to kind of minimized the impact of the virus. Should we be thinking more about investing in our health through other non-medical interventions? Yes. I, I think that I, when I'm caring for somebody who ha was a smoker, I can try smoking cessation classes and maybe supplemented with some pharmacologic agents to help fight nicotine cravings. But it'd be a lot, it's been way more effective as a society that we've banned smoking in indoor restaurants and in airplanes, and we've taxed the heck out of cigarettes and most that's been way more effective for sure. To combat obesity, it's uh, obesity is because of our food environment and our culture, how we face food. I think to stop subsidizing the production of sugar would be a great start. To tax it is less good, but maybe politically easier to do. Neither of those things are politically easy to do, but I think those are gonna have much more impact on health and what a physician can do or a nurse practitioner can do once you have diabetes. Well, you mentioned this case in England where someone had a parent with Alzheimer's and they're able to use this medical fund to buy a, a DVR for them. And, you know, we can impact our health by buying, say, standing desks or by joining a gym. And these things are generally not considered medical expenditures. I have a friend whose child had an attention problem and was going to therapy and the therapy was very expensive and it was being reimbursed. And then she pulled him out of this therapy and, and got him enrolled in some sports 
program. Sports program had exactly the same effect, but she couldn't get any kind of reimbursement for, you know, the sport. So it seems like there are all these other aspects of how we live that, that impact our long-term health and happiness, but we divide all of these activities into medical and non-medical. An arbitrary and, division, for sure, and mainly has to do with what an insurance company or a Medicare program will pay for. And in the program you talked about in the United Kingdom, DVR probably won't make sense to people who haven't read that anecdote. This was a gentleman who had Alzheimer's and would get very agitated. And you, partly with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, you, you're losing control over much of the world, and that's really hard to deal with. And so his son got him a DVR that had his favorite program on it, and it was really easy to press a button and see it. He could see the same show and repeat. And because of his, sadly, because of his memory problem, he would still enjoy it. And that calmed him down much more effectively probably than a lot of anti-anxiety medicines with many fewer side effects. And so thinking of how to spend healthcare dollars more flexibly, like they did in the United Kingdom there, a great idea. But Greg, you're absolutely right. If we, you know, health is different. Healthcare is only one way to achieve health. As a society, investing in parks, strong education systems, the best predictor of health that you can have. Those are what we as a society should be really focusing our money on. Well, I, I like to think that in order to get on the show, you have to quote Aristotle somewhere. And you know, you you did. You say that in order to live the good life, you have to cultivate virtue. And and I think Peter, you're doing that yourself with your life, bringing all this stuff together, philosophy, economics, decision theory, medicine, public policy. I highly recommend people check out your books, the two that I've read, Free Market Madness and, and Sick to Debt, and I'm going to run out and get the other ones. Thank you so much for joining me, Peter. And super fun to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.